It is so good to be with you this evening. I want to invite you to turn in the New Testament to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11. As Pastor Kathy and I have been reminding you, Easter is not just a day. Easter is a season. And I'm glad that Easter is a season because I need to be reminded that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Not just one Sunday out of the year, but every single day. Because we face death and darkness and brokenness. So in the season of Easter, we've been looking at stories of the resurrection. Last week, I basically just told a story. A Jesus story in which he reverses and shuts down a funeral because he brings a dead man to life. And restores a woman's life in the process. Well, we're going to shift gears and leave some of the stories and step into some straight-up teaching. The next two weeks, Lord willing, we're going to teach and talk about the resurrection. In particular, why the resurrection of Jesus matters in your everyday actual life now, and then next week, Lord willing, why it matters in our lives to come. The resurrection of Jesus matters. And so this evening, it's going to be kind of teachy and a little less preachy, but we need to understand this foundation of our faith that matters today and for eternity. And so we need to be reminded this evening in the season of Easter. Now, two big reasons, there are myriad reasons, but tonight I want to look at why it matters today. So, Would you join me back in Romans 6, verses 1 to 11? It's going to be on the screen. Paul is a smart dude, and this is his magnum opus. Romans is rich and dense, and there's a lot there. So I'm going to read this, and then we're going to talk about four remarkable claims that Paul makes that should matter to you here and now. Let's look. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were actually baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Jesus through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self, that was crucified with Him, So that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anybody who's died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Pause. That is present tense and future tense. Verse 9. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Pause. 
If we've been united with him in death and life, it stands to reason that even death that doesn't have mastery over Jesus, follow me, might not have mastery over you. If sin doesn't have mastery over Jesus, it follows that sin might not have mastery over you. He's making the claim that what's true of Jesus is true of you. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count, reckon, consider, add it all up, and count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, Thanks be to God. Man, we got a lot to be thankful for. And I'm so glad to be led in worship by Kelly and our team to hear the powerful story and prayer and reflection from Pastor Kathy. Y'all, it's good to be together. Now, I told you that we're going to unpack four remarkable claims that Paul's passage boils down to. And they are these Briefly, we're going to run back through them, so don't worry if you miss them now. I just want you to get the weight of what Paul is saying. We're dead to sin, which means also because, you're good, Becky, we're united to Jesus. Which means we're free from sin's power and penalty. Now that we're alive to God. We're dead to sin because we're united to Jesus, which means we're free from the power and penalty of sin now that we're alive to God. That's what we're spending the next few moments unpacking of Paul's argument. But before we do that, I want to illustrate why Paul says what he says. Did y'all catch the very beginning question in chapter 6, verse 1? So what's up, guys? Should we continue in sin, so that God can do what he loves to do, and that is keep on forgiving us. Let me illustrate why Paul is writing these remarkable claims. Imagine some Hollywood producers came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, baby, you're you're great. You're hot right now. That's what they sound like, right, Toby? Jesus. I got to tell you, you're on fire. What if they asked Jesus to write up a sequel for his most famous story? Probably his most famous story. What do you think? What do you think his most famous story might be? His parables. Prodigal son. I want a sequel to the prodigal son. It was the equivalent of a big blockbuster hit. I'd say that and the Good Samaritan are some of the most famous stories in Western culture. Jesus, write us a sequel to the prodigal son. What if Jesus obliged, and you can just imagine fast-forwarding a few years. Now, for those of you who don't remember, let me recap part one. The prodigal son was a young man that disrespected and brought shame on his whole family by saying, Dad, give me all your inheritance. I ain't waiting for you to die. You're as good as dead to me. I'm out. Take all the money, goes to a far country, and... He just does whatever you want to do. Sowing your wild oats times a hundred, says Jesus in this story. Well, he hits rock bottom because money runs out, and he finds himself in a very, very 
difficult and nasty situation. And so he says, let me face up and realize that I had it better with my father than I did here when all's said and done and the fun and yucks are over. So he's walking back home, the long journey back, and he's practicing his speech, his I really blew it speech. But Jesus confounds and shocks, I believe, the entire Western and ancient Near Eastern and fill in the blank. He confounded the whole world when he revealed God to be so much better than the God we thought we had. The God we thought we had, the God they thought they had, was an exacting, demanding, angry, wrathful, tyrannical kind of dad that would have done what a hundred million other dads would have done in the ancient Near East, and they would have seen that boy coming home, they would have smelled him, they would have smelled the booze and smelled the dope, and they would have smelled everything on him, and they would have kicked his butt to the curb. Not in Jesus' story. Jesus reveals a father, the true father, the father that he knows, a father that sees the sun as a shadow on the horizon and does not wait. He runs to him. He runs and embraces him. He does what no father in the ancient Near East does and embraces him and then throws a party because this son that was lost is now found. Hollywood producers say we need more. Marvel can do 38,000 movies. Jesus, hook me up. Imagine we fast forward the scene and the son has been back in the father's house. He's tending the flocks. He's working the field. He's doing what sons did. The elder son is still a little resentful because he played by all the rules. He's still doing it. And he's sitting there side-eye looking at that younger brother. Now imagine the younger brother goes off far to the back of the field and he starts to look at the horizon and he just begins to think and speak to himself something like this. Man, I've been at it a couple years. I got some money in the bank. I think I got enough to get me a ticket to Vegas. And I think I need one last hoorah. I think I need to go for broke like I did a couple years ago because you know what? i I know that Father is going to love me. I know that Father is going to forgive me. I know that as soon as he sees me coming back, he's going to run out to meet me again. That's just who he is. Now, as this sequel begins to reach its pivotal moment, Jesus, when he tells stories, loves to give a twist ending. And I think his twist ending would be like this. Just as quickly as he is looking at the horizon and thinking about going off the reservation again, I think just as quickly he shakes his head and realizes, wait, no way. That's not who I am anymore. I am a beloved child of a father who loves me more than I could ask or imagine. Even if I blew it, He'd run and get me 100 out of 100 times. But why go and do that? Because I am not who I was when I'm loved by him. This is why Paul writes what he writes. This is why it matters 
that Jesus is alive because when his life is shared with us and transforming us and moving us in and deeper into the love of the fatherly and motherly and sustaining, tender, powerful love of God, it begins to transform us from the inside out. So why should we go on sinning when he has broken the power of sin in our lives? It's like going back under the chains that he has already freed us from. Which leads us to the first remarkable claim, we are dead to sin. Now sin is an ugly word in the Bible. It's an ugly word in our world, but it's a nuanced word, and there's a lot of different definitions that get thrown around, even in the books of the Bible. Now, some of you might have heard that the original word sin means to miss the mark. Raise your hand if you've heard that, if you've been around Bible preaching and teaching and sermons and these kinds of things. So imagine there's a target that's God's ideal for his life, his light, his love, and we try our very best Evidently, we're going to miss. Eventually, we're going to miss. So sin is this way of missing the mark in the ideal. Then sin has that traditional cultural way. If you went and asked somebody on the street, what's sin? They're going to say, oh, doing wrong, evil, and wickedness. That is part of the Bible's nuanced definition of sin too. So let's just say for our purposes tonight that sin is rebellion. Against God and his way. Sin is rebellion against God and his way. Now we hear this in a micro level. If you've grown up around a lot of conservative American churches, you are going to hear that you stink. And your biggest problem is that God hates you and he can't look at you until he forgives you and cleans you up. But that doesn't sound like the prodigal son to me. Because I think the Bible starts with an identity that is firstly rooted in an identity that is marked and shaped by God. Let me tell you what I mean. In Genesis chapter 1, the ancient story of how God created all things seen and unseen, when he stoops down to create man and woman, he breathes his life into them. And something happens in this mystical way in which God's fingerprint and stamp and mark is forever upon each and every created human in God's image. The Latin phrase for this is imago dei, the image of God. Eight billion people in this world living and breathing today are bearers of God's image. The difference is a good many of them have said, no thanks, I don't want to live into that, I don't want to accept that, and they are living their lives best they can on a far country like a prodigal son, spending everything they have, hitting rock bottom, and still thumbing their noses and say, I'm good, thanks. There are 8 billion image bearers of God doing our best to medicate and numb the fact that we've got a God-shaped hole and we are restless until we find our rest in Him. But the first thing you need to know about humans is that they are marked with an image of God. That's chapter 1 of our book. Chapter 3 is when we use the free will that a loving God gave us to do what I just described and say, thank you. So on a micro level, 
we still have, you have, this image of God that is loving, that can be a decent human being, and that is seeking something beyond yourself. Yes? But also, hate to break it to you, you're not perfect. There is also this residual rebellious streak that is perpetually running around like your 15-year-old self. No offense, Isaac, and 15-year-olds. But that is the peak level of, I'm going to do me. Now, here's what matters. It's not just the micro ickiness, the personal sins of how we hurt ourselves and others. When you get 8 billion people doing that against God in his way, there's a macro sin problem that very few of these conservative American churches tend to talk about. And what we have is a society that bears the marks of people who've forgotten their image of Godness. And you see war and violence and racism and greed and how we treat the stranger and the other and the different. And there are forces at work on a macro level of darkness that we need rescuing from. Now, on the macro level, if you just follow the way of the world, you're going to find yourself drifting further from God and into death. Paul writes that the wages of sin, the end game, is death. If you continue on a micro level to choose to harm yourself, to hurt yourself, to hurt others, to, forgi- to refuse to forgive, to refuse to give, to refuse to love, you begin to turn yourself more and more inward, and the end game is drifting from God and into death. Sin is the littlest and the biggest, but at the end of it all is death unless. The good news of our faith is that God intervenes to raise us back up, to put us back together, and to restore in us who we were made to be because Jesus became one of us, took on the worst of us, so that he could elevate us to be the best version of humanity that God had intended. But it's only possible when you get off the chain, the train, and the way of the world and turn your face, your feet, your hands and get on the wagon of Jesus and his kingdom. This is the good news that Jesus came to declare and demonstrate. Are you with me? More than turn or burn, it's follow me and live the life that you were always made to live. And when the conspiracy of the kingdom begins to invade our hearts, it transforms our actions, our minds, it begins to transform our communities, and then all of a sudden the micro problem and the macro problem gets transformed under the kingdom of God. And it starts when you say yes to Jesus. And when you say yes to Jesus, our second claim that Paul reads is you have been dead, revoked, it's null and void, you stepped off the train. Why? Because you're united to Jesus. Did y'all see where he says in verse 5, we have been united with him in a death like his and a resurrection like his. And you thought you just said, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. You did say that if you're his. But more than that, something 
amazing happened. And he brought that old way, that old identity, and transferred it into a new humanity, which is why I brought this. This is you. Say, hi, you. This is an Ikea plant, but it also represents you. This and everything orbiting around you, your life, your wants, your wishes, your ways, your money, your time, your body, all of this can go your way or you can turn and say yes to Jesus. And when you turn and say yes to Jesus, the first thing we do as Christians is to signify and show what has happened within you, this overhaul of your very life. And we do that through baptism. How we do baptism matters, not because God will love us more if we dunk versus sprinkle, but because the picture it's painted is the one we just read about. You are united with him in baptism, just like you were buried with Jesus. You are also raised like Jesus to live and walk in a new life. But did you notice when Paul talks about baptism, he didn't say just baptized into a church or baptized into a new doctrine or baptized into a new this or that or the other. You are baptized into Jesus. Y'all see this here? This is Jesus. You say, hi, Jesus. Of course, he's so much bigger and more beautiful than this little Ikea pot. But what happens when we say yes to him is we're transferred out of this way of death and darkness and sin and transferred into Christ. And the reason why I love this plant is because plants are living, breathing, and they are also frail. They need sunlight. They need nurturing and water and care. It is something that still needs to be nurtured. In our church, we say a disciple of Jesus, someone who says yes to follow Jesus, is what Dallas Willard said. We're someone who is being with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. That being with is so crucial. Jesus himself says, you are a branch and I am the vine. And whoever abides in me will bear much fruit, will live the life that God always intended you to live. And we show that through baptism into Jesus. Paul's way of saying abiding in Jesus is to say in Christ. What's true of Christ now becomes true of you when you are in him. But it's still a life and a relationship that needs to be nurtured and pruned and grown. Which is really important because the things that still try to creep in and choke out our life is that thing of sin, that rebellious streak. Which leads us to Paul's third bold claim that he writes, especially in verses 6 and 7. He says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, cast off, put away, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We are free from the power and penalty of sin. What do I mean by this? We're free from the power of sin. Y'all, sin, like addiction, has this way of entangling us, of tripping us up, of turning us inward instead of outward. And it doesn't just happen to be the things that we think about, like lust or greed or pride. 
It's the way of turning ourselves inward from our neighbor. The ways that we refuse to forgive. The ways that we refuse to love. The ways that we refuse to encourage and bless and to lift up the poor, the broken. To see them as God's image bearers. It begins to enslave us again. And we begin to find that our life is choked out from us. But we also are free from the penalty of sin. You see, it's still a matter of life and death. When we're in Jesus, the death that he died, he died once and for all. You need not fear God, no matter how bad you blow it. You are free from the penalty of sin. But also because you're free from the power of sin, would you live the life that he's made? Not because he's angry with you, but because he wants what's best for you. Are you with me? This is why we gather and teach our students the way of Jesus. I believe the way of Jesus is the way of life. I believe that God was pleased to dwell in Jesus who loved and lifted up all the broken. And it's a major shift when you realize that to live the Jesus life, hear me, little bird, it is a major shift in your life when you say no to fear and shame and no to a sin-centric, I am only as good as my behavior. And you shift to a God-centric, identity-centered, I am loved despite my performance. I was a part of a small group in college of a group of young single men that dealt with all the kinds of temptations and sins that young single men tend to deal with. And it was the saddest sack of dudes because we would get together and we would commiserate. It was the biggest bummer. And we did it for like six months. And every week it was like, yeah, dude, I screwed up again, man. And we would call it accountability because that's what you do in evangelical circles. And we would just sit there and say all the ways we stunk. And not once. Did someone stand up and say, you don't have to do this. Would you consider yourself actually dead to sin and alive to God? It was a major shift in my life to walk away from the shame that went back to God with my hat in hand like the prodigal son rehearsing my speech to say, I know I did it again. And I was convinced that he hated me, so I wanted to run from him instead of to him. But even then, he ran to me. And this makes all the difference, and I need you to understand this. When you blow it, repent. What the prodigal son did when he hit rock bottom was he changed his mind, which leads to a change of direction. This is the word repent in a nutshell. What you need to do is not feel sorry for yourself. You need to turn back to Jesus who says, I love you no matter what. It's the difference of Jesus doing this versus Jesus doing this. Do you see the difference? The woman caught in adultery, ready to be stoned by the religious elite according to the letter of the law, but mercy triumphs over the law, and he says, neither do I condemn you, and he raises her up and then says what? Now go and sin no more. Not because you better watch out, but because I promise you there is a life here, there is a new identity, a new direction, and here's how it most often looks in your everyday life. You ready? I am convinced of this. 
Jesus gives us what we need to live the life he's called us to live. Do you understand that everything that Jesus asked of you is livable? Because the world and the poor and the broken and the ignorant give two you-know-whats about what we believe and they care everything about how we live in light of what we believe. Everything that Jesus has asked us to do, to forgive, to lay down our weapons, to give sacrificially, to love, to follow him in the way we use our bodies, everything he's asked us, he's given us the strength to do. And here's where you need to understand. Most often it looks like the power to take the next right step in your everyday life. Can I tell you truthfully, honestly, this week, there were moments in my life when I'm thinking of this or feeling this, I want to say that I legit said, how am I going to preach this Saturday that he's given me the power and freedom to not live in this old way if I'm going to continually choose to go back and slide under the chains? This week, at least three times, I'm on the phone, I'm walking out of nowhere, I have this thought like, oh, I just gotta, and then I think, wait a minute, Jesus, you're here, help me, I need you. We're united to Jesus, we're free from the power of penalty to sin, and because we're dead to sin, we're also finally alive to God. Y'all know that at the church I was at previously, I was a young adult pastor, and I had the opportunity to start a 12-step ministry. And that was such the most formative and fruitful time. It was also the most difficult time in my ministry, not least because we had this enormous building. And every Monday night, I would have 60 or 40 addicts. And I was trying to keep the men and women separate when they went to their small groups. Try doing that in like a 20,000 square foot building. It was really tough. And so most of the time I just spent walking around and wandering the halls like some 25-year-old principal trying to tell these people not to fraternize. So it was difficult. But once in a while, someone got it. And not just because they would string days of sobriety together, but because they got it and they lived the first couple steps, which recognizes I am powerless until you give yourself to a higher power. And there was one person I'll never forget that embodied this idea of being dead to sin and alive to God through the waters of baptism. I will never forget Ronnie's baptism. Middle-aged man that had had a string of dysfunction in his life. He was one of those dudes that never really had a chance like so many in and around our community. And so he was in and out of jail, in and out of rehab, in and out of addiction, living currently at a halfway house. But he said yes to Jesus. And he went and was baptized. And at this time in this big old church, we had a whole section of our recovery folks. And you could smell them. And it smelled like grace and wonder. And when Ronnie went down and was buried... I think for the first and only time they had actually hidden a springboard launch platform underneath it because this dude didn't get raised up. This dude got launched up. And this dude with his East Texas thing came up out of the water, slicked his hair back. You could see the thing spraying like Shamu coming up out of the water. And he goes, woohoo! And he embodied what Paul wants us to lean into and live. 
because we're all prodigal sons rehearsing our speech on the way back until the Father runs to greet us. And after so long, we realize that this love has transformed us, has rekindled and reignited what was latent and there all along. But it's not even the same image. It's a renewed image. It's a new humanity. And we see this love beginning to transform us from the inside out. Paul will say later in Romans 8, you've been given the Holy Spirit of God within you. Jesus says, I am in you. And you begin to realize you are in him. And you begin to realize that I am a son. I am a daughter. I am a child of God. Why would I want to go back? So the final invitation for those who are dead to sin because you're united to Jesus, which means you're free from the power and penalty of sin, now that you're alive to God, to live God's life within you and around you, the final invitation is this. You are God's child, so lean in and live it. You're struggling with the sin. You're struggling with the brokenness of this world. Lean in and live it. When you don't feel like it, when you messed up, when you're sure it's not true, would you hear me? It's true. When shame says, I am bad, guilt says, I did bad, Hear the voice of one call you beloved and live it. You've tried white knuckling it. You've tried just grinning and bearing it. Have you tried abiding in him daily? Have you tried being with him? Because even the presence of Christ is salvific. Salvation is living with God by trusting God's King. The king who is raised and alive and is alive in you. It matters today. So whatever next step you have to take a first step toward Jesus, because students, this life is for you here and now. You don't have to have it all figured out or all lived out, but it is an invitation. Adults, an invitation. And when it becomes a picture, may it be a touchstone to remind you that I may not be living it today, but I know that I've been buried and raised again with Jesus because I can point to that memory in my heart where I came up out of the water to live a new life. And that's what it's about. So you who need a new start, may you know that the Father is running to meet you that the Holy Spirit is empowering within you and that Jesus Christ is inviting you to take a step out of death and into life. Amen. No matter how frightening the world may become, no matter how frightening the individual circumstances of your life may be today or may become tomorrow, you need not be afraid for God is with you. God goes before you to guide you beside you to be your best friend, behind you to protect you, beneath you to support you, and above you to give you vision and courage and hope. If you will remember that, then the peace of Christ that passes all understanding will be with you too. Go now and walk in peace and love.